Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, pleased to be seated. Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to um, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, our Old Testament reading today. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, and let me lead us in prayer as we come to look at it together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, and we pray, Father, that as we uh, come to uh, look at this passage together, uh, that your Spirit will be pointing us to Jesus, that we might see Him and love Him and appreciate Him, uh, and that we might better serve Him uh, as His servants. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday many of us had the opportunity to choose leaders for our country for the next five years. And to have a part in choosing our leaders is actually a great privilege, isn't it? Uh, it's something we should never take for granted. And so I was very encouraged to see so many people uh, whom I know are uh, going out to vote. As we know, the result was not decisive. Uh, and uh, uh, we know that there is a, a hung parliament. No single group has got a, a simple majority. Uh, and so we need to keep praying uh, for the whole process of negotiation now. Uh, and especially pray for wisdom for the young Nipotuan Agong uh, as he decides who to invite. Uh, to, to form government. But in the kingdom of God, there is no elections. There is no negotiation. Uh, there is no uncertainty. God chooses his king. And his name is Jesus. And the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament was, was meant to be a model that points forward to this. Like a little building that the architect builds before he builds the real building, uh, it's there to show what, what, what to, to, to be a little picture of what the kingdom is, is really like. Uh, and in the Old Testament kingdom, David was the man that God chose to be king over his people. Imperfect as he was, he was meant to be a shadow, a model, a sign who points forward to Jesus who is king in God's kingdom. And so as we see David in action and we see how people relate to him, uh, we can learn lessons about Jesus and about how to relate to Jesus as our king. A couple of weeks ago, before the combined service, we looked at 2 Samuel 9, and we saw how King David chose to show chesed, that is, God's loyal, loving kindness, grace, uh, to, to, to a crippled man named Mephibosheth, someone who could never repay that kindness. He did so in fulfillment to, of prior promises that he had made to his father. He did so because God had shown this kind of kindness to him. And we, showed, and we saw how Mephibosheth responded. When summoned to David, he bowed before him. He called himself David's servant. And David told him his plans, right? He would restore his inheritance. He would bring Mephibosheth into his household to eat at his table. And all Mephibosheth could do was to wonder at the amazing kindness that David had shown him. And we saw, remember, my friends, that God has shown us his chesed, his loyal, loving kindness in King Jesus. Jesus has treated us far better than we could ever deserve or ever repay. He's done it in fulfillment of his prior promises. And so we bow before him and call him, uh, call ourselves his servants. He has promised to restore our inheritance, all that we lost at the fall. And for all eternity, we will be with him in the new creation, have a place to eat at his table, enjoying fellowship with him. And all we can do is wonder at the amazing grace that he has shown us. So it was very clear last time where we fit in the story. 
We were like Mephibosheth, a recipient of the king's kindness. But what about this week? Who did you identify with in the passage as, as we read it just now? Of course, we're not meant to so much identify with David, right? Because David points forward not to us, but, but to Christ. So where else might we fit in? Well, you recall there was someone in that reading who spurned David's hesed. And there may be people here like that. Or maybe people online who are actually rejecting the kindness of Jesus and his offer of relationship. We'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon. But I trust that most of us who are listening here are people who, like Mephibosheth, have actually received that hesed, that kindness, that grace, gratefully. And so in this story, we are not like those who rejected David's kindness. And then, so who are we? Well, did you notice as we read in our passage today, we met a number of people who served David. Some of them served as his messengers. Some of them served in his army. And you and I, friends, are servants of Christ. So if David is like Jesus, then we are like David's servants. So let's look at this passage carefully putting ourselves in the shoes of David's servants to see how we can apply this to our own lives as servants of Jesus. The first thing that David's servants are called on to do is to offer the king's kindness. To offer the king's kindness. The background of the story is that a guy called Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had died. And he had some good history with David, details of which we're not told. But David intends to show his hesed, his loyal, loving kindness, to the guy's son, Hanan, who in verse 1 reigned in his place. And so he says in verse 2, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father, that's the, that deal loyally, that's that hesed word, as his father dealt loyally with me. Uh, and so David sends uh, by his servants to console him concerning his father, and the servants come to the land of the Ammonites. He sends his servants to offer Hesed. And brothers and sisters, you and I are servants of Jesus, sent by him to offer his kindness to others, to offer them relationship with him, a relationship in which he shows that Loyal, kindness, and love, like he has done for us by dying for us on the cross. And friends, that is a wonderful message to bring from a wonderful king. Uh, when I was a doctor, I'd often see people who were dying or close to death, and I'd say, you know, medicine can only do so much. Lah. What these people really need is Jesus. They really need eternal life that only he can give. What they really need is forgiveness. And so one of the best things about being a pastor is I get, I get called to share the gospel with people who are sick or elderly or close to death. And just last week I was talking to an old lady about our king. I read John 3.16 to her. You know John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I said all kinds of things before this, and she just sat there and listening to me. When I read this to her, her face just lit up. She said, oh, that is so good. That is so good, she said. And friends, it is. 
It is. The kindness of our King is so, so good. And so to bring this message of his kindness to others, especially those who are on their last lap before eternity, that's such a wonderful privilege, isn't it? But you know, actually everyone we meet is dying. They just don't realize it. And it's not just the pastors who have that privilege. We all have the privilege of bringing the gospel to others. We are servants of Jesus, sent by him to bring his offer of kindness to people. But not everyone appreciates the king's offer. In verse 3, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search out the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Right? They assume the worst. They come up with a conspiracy theory. They, they spurn the king's hesed. But not only do they reject the king, they reject his messengers as well. And so in verse 4, Hanan takes David's servants, he shaves off half their beard of each, presumably vertically, and he cuts off their garment in the middle at the hips and sends them away. He's exposed them, subjected them to thorough shame. And friends, sometimes when people reject the kindness of King Jesus, they also mistreat his messengers. They may speak about us or criticize us or treat us in ways that bring shame. And one of my best friends was ostracized and shamed and disowned by his own family when he started to follow Jesus. Others are happy for us to be Christian, but please don't ever mention God's offer of kindness to them or to the people in their groups. If they do, they'll find ways to embarrass us. You know what? The kindness of our king is so good that it's, that it's actually worth taking the risk of being rebuffed to offer it to people, especially to those whom we care about the most. So be prepared lah, to be mistreated. Be prepared to suffer shame for the king. Be prepared for people to assume the worst about you instead of realizing why you're actually so eager to share this, the wonderful news of Jesus with them. And know in the end, it's not actually you they're rejecting. It's him. When David's men were shamed, that mattered to David because he cared for his men. And so when he was told about what was happened, he, he sent a team to meet them in verse 5. He took the initiative to minimize their shame by uh, arranging for them to remain in Jericho until their beards had regrown. And likewise, friends, our king cares for us. We know he cares for us because he died for us. He knows what we go through in order to offer his kindness to people who might reject it. He will be with us. He will look after us, maybe through other servants of his, like these messengers, as we, as we face shame for him. So, If you're like one of his servants, then make sure that you look after your brothers and sisters who are suffering for the king. Look out for people who are being shamed by others because they faithfully communicate the offer of kindness from our king. You make a special effort to be kind and supportive of them because your king cares for them 
as much as he cares for you. Well, what happens next? Well, when the Amorites see that they've become a stench to David, verse 6, they send and they hire, well, a whole lot of uh, mercenaries. They're scared that David's going to attack them. So they hire all these Syrian mercenaries and other mercenaries to bolster their defense. The details of that are in verse 6. And when David hears about this, he sends Joab and an army of mighty men to attack the Ammonites. So it's going to be war. Joab and his army approach in verse 8. The Ammonite city is there, so, so they come out uh, and they draw in battle uh, array at the entrance of the gate. They're going to defend the city. The mercenaries, they're in the open country, coming up behind Joab and his army. And so David's servants, in this case Joab and his army, are now trapped between the defenders of the city and the mercenaries. Two hostile armies. That's not a good place to be. And friends, in this world our king has many enemies. And sometimes they, they may seem overwhelming. And sometimes it feels that we're trapped, cannot win. Now the real enemies are the spiritual forces of evil, we are told in the New Testament. And they will use people and organizations and movements against us. Now we've got to love the people, because the battle's not really against them. It's against the spiritual forces of evil. But they can be used by them for their own purposes. And so there may be groups on one side who oppose us with religion, make up its conspiracy theories against us, to shore up their support. And on the other people who have anti-religious agenda, try to make us conform to their own version of morality, which as far as God is concerned is immorality, and will say terrible things about us when we don't agree with them. And sometimes all this can be overwhelming. What do the king's servants do in this story when trapped between two hostile armies? Well, they do three things. They strategize as best they can. They encourage each other to be courageous. And they trust God's ultimate sovereignty in the outcome. Look at verse 9 to 11. When Job sees the battle sends against him in the front and the rear, he chooses some of the best men of Israel and he arrays them against the Syrians. And the rest of his men he puts in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrays them against the Ammonites. And he says, okay, if the Syrians are too strong for me, you help me. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will help you. So they fight back to back. It's a strategy. Well, it's not rocket science, but it is a plan. Having no plan is not more spiritual than having a plan. Uh, as we do spiritual battle, as we fight, not with weapons of war, but with the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, we go about proclaiming, declaring, uh, defending the gospel. Of course, could have a plan now. King's servants strategize the best they can. And then in verse 12, Joab says to, Ab uh, says to Abishai, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. Right? That's the encouragement. When the battle is hard, when the enemy seems overwhelming, sometimes it is tempting to quit. 
And we time to say, ah, yeah, I've done my bit. Let me just leave it here. Get out of the battle. I'm not saying God doesn't give us times of rest. Of course he does. We mustn't lose courage and quit fighting the war. Be brave. Move forward. Fight the good fight. Never, 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 never give up. And then the third thing that Job says is actually the most profound. He says, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. He trusts in God's sovereignty. You see, yes, we strategize, but that's not what we put our hope in. Our confidence is not in our strategy, but in the fact that God, in the end, is in control and will do what seems good to him. And we, of course, know that even more than Joab knows it, because we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And so we strategize, we fight courageously, but in the end, we trust God and his sovereignty. And if we trust God and his sovereignty, that when we strategize and when we fight, we will do, and when we encourage each other to do so, we will do so prayerfully. It doesn't mean that we will always get the outcome that we like best. It doesn't mean that we won't be persecuted or shamed or maligned. It doesn't mean the people that we invite to the nine lessons and carol service will come. It doesn't mean we won't lose our contract because we keep talking about Jesus. But it does mean that we trust that God knows better than us. And he'll be sad, and we will be satisfied with whatever he decides. In this case, the Lord gives victory to Job and the people with him. When he and his people come to battle against the, the Syrian mercenaries in verse 13, they flee before him. And when the Ammonites see that the Syrians flee in verse 14, they also flee before Abishai. They go into the city. And so the opposing armies retreat on both sides, and God gives victory to Joab. He doesn't then go and besiege the city. Uh, that actually won't be taken until chapter 12. Instead, he returns from the fighting, goes back to Jerusalem. And you might think that that is the end of the story. But no. The Syrians don't like losing. And so in verse 15, they decide on a counter-offensive. They gather themselves together and they get reinforced with a much larger Syrian army from beyond the Euphrates, led by a king called Hadadezer. Hadadezer was like a big-time king, a king who ruled other kings. And so the fighting now is going to escalate, actually. And finally, David himself enters the battle. He gathers all Israel in verse 17, not just Job's army. And he crosses the Jordan River to face the Syrian army. And they fight head on. And in verse 18, the Syrians flee. David kills 700 chariot riders, 40,000 horsemen, fatally wounds the commander of Hadadezer's army. And when all the kings who are servants of Hadadezer see they've been defeated by Israel, they make peace with Israel and become subject to them. And the Syrians are scared to save the Amorites anymore. See what's happened here? There's been a big final climax. And David's presence has brought decisive, victorious end to the conflict. And ushers in a time of peace. And brothers and sisters, if in this age we are still at war, 
right? Not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and power, the spiritual forces of evil. Right? Our sword is the word of God. This age we're still at war. The victory of the king is assured because of his death and resurrection. And we wait for him to come back again. And when our king comes, he will bring a climactic, decisive, victorious end to the conflict. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will thoroughly defeat the enemy. He will judge the world and bring God's righteous wrath on those who oppose him. He will rule the world and bring in his reign of peace. Next week on Advent Sunday, we'll look further at this return of the King. In the meantime, we've seen today what we should do as servants of the King. Offer the King's kindness, be prepared to be mistreated, but know that the King cares. And if the King's enemies sometimes see, seem overwhelming, take courage as you battle. Plan your strategy as best you can. Trust God's sovereignty and do that prayerfully. And know that one day the King will return and his presence will bring a decisive end to the conflict, and we will have peace in the end. Finally, if you are not a servant of the king, then allow me the privilege of being a messenger to offer the king's kindness to you. Jesus loves you and offers you loyal, loving kindness for all eternity. He died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins so that God can forgive you without saying that your sin is okay. He rose from the dead to be your king. Please don't spurn the kindness that he is offering you today. If you do, that won't end well. Because if you reject his kindness, then there's nothing left between you and, and God's, judgment, God's just judgment against you for your sins. You believe in Jesus, accept his kindness, accept his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy. You become one of his servants and enjoy his loving love, his loving, loyal love for all eternity. For remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that is so good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our King and that we have the privilege of being his servants. Help us, we pray, to appreciate more and more how good his grace is and be willing to take the risk of being shamed in order to offer his kindness to others. Thank you that he cares for us, his servants. And please help us to care for his servants who are mistreated by others. Please help us as we battle for the gospel to prayerfully trust in your sovereignty and in that context to plan our strategy and encourage each other to persevere. As we look forward to the day when our King returns, and every knee bows before Him, 
And we ask this, Father, in his name. Amen.